man. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. How you doing? Hey, I'm great, man. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm uh, pumped for today's episode. We were just talking about the fact that, well, for those of you guys, I mean, you see in the title at this point, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, resistance profiles, training positions, some nerdy hypertrophy stuff, training with length and partials and stuff like that. But before we jump into it, do a quick backstory. You've been on the podcast before, so people care about the lengthy version. They can go back and listen to that one, but give people a quick rundown who you are, what you do. Yeah, I own a couple like online group training programs, much like you do. Um, my personal brand is Evolved Training Systems. And then I'm partnered with Lori Christine King, and we own a company called Paragon Training Methods together. And uh, like I said, it's very similar to, to what you do. Um, we have a number of different programs where I think you have like a, a free weight program and, uh, and a Globo Gym program. We have like nine different programs, which is kind of nuts. But, um, but that's what I do. A little bit of one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, come from a background where training has always been important in my life, at least if not, you know, one of the, the, the top thing. It's in the top three always. And uh, got a bunch of years doing CrossFit, a number of years in hypertrophy, a uh, total of almost 25 years training. And uh, it's been now five plus years since I bounced out of CrossFit and kind of been in hypertrophy full time. So I've been... Uh, learning a lot and uh it's really cool to to be here in in this pursuit and no longer uh in the other pursuit anymore and and we're definitely gonna talk about fun training position like uh, resistance profile stuff but i i heard i think i was on your stories at some point you were just somebody had asked you in a q a like that you feel better doing hypertrophy that maybe your joints feel better i wasn't sure the direct context of the question but um let's talk about that for a second just like joint pain issues especially coming from the crossfit world over to hypertrophy world like you could talk about whether or not I'm pulling this out of my ass or you do feel actually better. Um, and if yeah. so kind of maybe we'll just touch on maybe a little bit why. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's kind of the common thing that most people realize when they come from like a, a dynamic or ballistic style of training. I mean, even like a powerlifting style where there's like a performance element to it. Um, we always talk about this, uh, you and I in general, the industry, but the, the forgiving nature of hypertrophy training. And, um, there's just so many ways to roam. And so even when I first started back into hypertrophy after my like eight or nine year hiatus into CrossFit, I still had all these emotional ties to these big lifts and it kind of was mitigating to me dumping a lot of the fatigue that I was feeling and a lot of the, the joint pain that I was experiencing. So, um, in CrossFit, I had a bunch, man. I had uh, basically knees that hurt all day, every day, getting out of the car, getting out of bed, anything. Like it took 30 minutes of dynamic warmups for me to do my like Olympic lifting and squatting training each day. Um, beyond knees, I've been mostly okay. Like I've had my fair share of battering in my ankles and shoulders and things like that. And um, towards the end of CrossFit, I, I began to experience... Um, Man, I just, I think they're QL strains would be the best way to describe it. It's just like a small strain in the low back and it's not prohibitive to training. Um, like maybe for a week or two, you know, you can't go as heavy as you were on a hip hinge, but within two or three weeks, you know, you're right back to, to where you were. No big deal. Um, but I would experience those constantly in CrossFit 
And then post CrossFit, I still had all these emotional ties to the movements. So I was doing things like RDL, stiff legged deadlifts. I actually think the stiff legged deadlift, like if you assume that that's going to the ground of an RDL, I think that that was really the main culprit for me once I got into hypertrophy training, because that range of motion was just too far for me. Um, it wasn't putting me in deflection, but it was just making the low back, the dominant mover in the bottom of the movement. So a couple of years ago, I switched stiff legged deadlifts out and basically just went RDL full-time. And I had, don't think I've had more than one of those back strains in a couple of years now. Um, and then to kind of wrap it up to your point, man, I'm three months away from being 40 and I actually have like zero pain on a daily basis, which is kind of nuts. Um, I'm able to choose movements that align well with, with my body structure that helped me meet my goals um, of achieving hypertrophy, all the N1 stuff that you and I talk about all the time. Um, that stuff has been crucial for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's certainly small little things that pop up at the end of mesocycles that are signs that, you know, your deload is coming type thing. Like, oh, you know, my elbow this, or, you know, small little tweak in the knee there. But, uh, but things that, you know, resolve themselves in a week or less, and then you're right back to training. So I feel very fortunate to be training 25 years and be in such a good state. And, uh, I can't imagine that there'd be another type of training that I would want to do that, that would help me reach my goals of, of achieving, you know, the physique I want while also being so friendly to the body as it ages. Yeah. I was absolutely listening to your answer, but there were also a couple of things that had come to mind. You could tell me if they ring true in, in, in a reasoning sense, I just feel like other resistance training pursuits, powerlifting, CrossFit, Olympic lifting, they're, they have a competitive aspect and that comp that the competitive nature, the competition that you are doing has structure and standards. And so you're kind of shoving yourself into those standards versus a hypertrophy approach is kind of the opposite. It's more of like, let's look at my structure and my active range of motion and moves that feel good for me and that, that fit my anthropometry. And so it's a little bit less of like, square pegs and round holes and a little bit more of like, what am, what am I, what is the body? What is this person's individual that I'm now layering on what might be best for them? Instead of like, I have to squat bench deadlift. I have to clean and press. I have to jerk. I have to do, you know, butterflies. I have to do, uh, you know, whatever, whatever other CrossFit things, uh, burpees and stuff, whatever. Um, and then I thought like a couple other things, like just like generally like better alignment. And I think that's something you were talked about. This is the thing that stuck in my, my, the, my head about the Q and a answer that you had given was just like finding, like the utilization of cables and the better ability to line up the the joint with the force uh, that you are trying to work against. And so I think that that's also huge, especially with cables. And then additionally with cables, I feel like generally cables are gonna be a little bit more joint friendly in, in general, just across the board. Not a huge thing, but I think when you do combine a lot of those slower eccentrics, the use of cables being potentially just more joint friendly across the board, the fact that you can align things better with the joint you're trying to work, whether that's the proper amount of adduction for a chest press, or if you're trying to do a cross cable extension, really lining things up in a way that fits the elbow really well. Um, and potentially you mentioned a really good one was like operating under less central fatigue likely at all times. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that is, a lot of people are like, well, well, you know, hypertrophy is just about aesthetics. And I think that if you dig a little bit deeper, you find that there are like this, some of these things where it's like, maybe this is like a, I'm not gonna make some longevity hack comment, but it might be <laughs> something that is feasible for a very long time when we look at joint pain. Yeah, I, I honestly think that like, I can still be training like this into my 60s. I don't really see a reason that I can't be using like back supported squat machines and, and different cable upper body movements for the next 25, 30 years. So, um, so I think I've I kind of found the Holy grail. And then 
you know, like psychologically too, when I go into training sessions, it's, um, it's a much different level of psychological excitement, which I think plays to my more type B personality a little bit with the competitive drive of CrossFit or powerlifting or any of those other pursuits. Every training session is like, man, fucking a battle. Like you got to go into that thing ready to just fight and die under the, under the, the cause. Right. So with hypertrophy, I like, I put my headphones on and it just like puts me into this zone and I like almost stay like Zen and calm. And I even try to like stay unexcited going into sets. I listen to like slower music, keep my heart rate down, stay as sympathetic as long as possible and, uh, or parasympathetic. I messed that up. Um, yeah, but, um, but, uh, but that it's really been great for me. So, so yeah, that's, that's my feelings on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, I listened to Dr. Mike once talking about like periodizing his music selection where like early in the mesocycle, not pulling out all the stops and saving, you know, listening to like podcasts in week one and two, and then like, yeah. like low deep trance music in like weeks three and four. And then weeks five and six, he's like, I get into shit that puts me in like a dark place. And I'm like, it makes, it makes kind of sense to me. I mean, I, yeah. I catch myself rarely putting on like the kind of music that gets me hyped up until like, it's something that I'm actually using to like help me get into the zone, you know? Yep. No, for sure. I'm right with you on that. Cool. Let's jump into topics for today. We're going to talk about resistance profiles and training with length and partials and some techniques that set, set and rep schemes that we've been using. Um, but before we do that, let's do like a quick just kind of breakdown of like what is a resistance profile? Because I think it is something that gets commonly confused with anatomical position or training position. Mm -hmm. We taught people like, oh, trains the length of position, overloads the length of position, works the short <laughs> position, trains the short head. And I feel like these like yeah. long, long and short words get kind of a little bit convoluted and just kind of get confused as over what those th two things are. So, and we're gonna reference resistance profile and training position. We're gonna talk a little bit about what the difference is, what's more important, which do we care about? And so let's do a little quick, what is a resistance profile? What is an anatomical training position? Yeah. So resistance profile would just kind of be like where the, the muscle is weakest or strongest or where the, where the, where the X man, I always mix that up. Strength, strength curve and right, resistance strength profile. Curve. Sure. Res, res, strength curve is the one where the muscle is the weakest or strongest. Right. And that's, and then resistance profile is that of the movement. Um, so the example always is the, the pull around from the, which is a length that it trains at long muscle lengths, uh, the pull around for the, the lat region, it trains it at long muscle length, but it's still overloaded for the most part in the short position. Um, and that essentially just means to, to clear for the listeners, short position being like, uh, the, the top of a row. So if you're thinking of like a cable row or the bottom of a pull down or something like that, that would be where the muscle gets shortest. So it's contracting, um, and then the, the movement itself is getting hardest there. So that's the, uh, the strength curve then would be that the, the muscle is weak there and the resistance profile would also be that it's short overloaded. So a movement like that would just be like short, short, right. It's kind of one way of looking at it. Um, and then something like a, a, a pull around going back to that example would be like lengthened short because it's training it at a long muscle length. You're going to the full length of that muscle, but when you're actually reaching the hardest point of that movement, the hardest point is going to be when the elbow is in by the side. Um, 
so is that kind of where you wanted to go with that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think <laughs> I think in, in, bringing up strength curve is obviously super important. Don't know why that's not in my note, but um, so like strength curve would be like uh, where within a, a range of motion the muscle is stronger versus weaker. And I think generally speaking, it's it, is it not one hundred percent accurate to say this, but I think generally speaking, a strength curve across most muscles is going to be stronger in more lengthened positions, weaker yeah. as that muscle gets more contracted, weaker in shorter positions. Yeah. And yes, it is more complex than that, but I think if there's an average listener out there that's like, hey, as my muscle gets shorter, it gets weaker. As it gets a little bit more lengthened, it's probably stronger up there. That is yeah. a pretty decent takeaway, a beginning discussion to this. And then if we look at resistance profile, I always think of it like resistance profile talks about the exercise, training position talks about the muscle. So resistance mm -hmm. profile is going to just talk about the exercise. Where in this exercise, where in the RDL, where in the pull-up, is this going to be the hardest? Um, and then training position is like of the the range of motion that is available to a certain muscle. So if we, we talk the pull around, it's funny, it's exactly the one I wrote. If you look at your lats, to get to a more fully lengthened lat, we want that arm to cross. You got, If you're not watching YouTube, you can't see me there, but whatever. You want your arm to come across your the midline of the body, almost like adduct, come to the midline of the body for it to become more lengthened. And when we would say doing a pull around, you're training in a more lengthened position because you are getting that lat to be, you know, let's say fully lengthened when you begin the exercise. But if you take the pull around as, and ask me as an exercise, where is that exercise going to be hardest? Well, it's gonna be hardest at the bottom in a more short position. So that is an exercise where we, we are training a lengthened position because our arm is going across the midline of our body. But the resistance profile of the movement is hardest at the bottom. The other one that I wrote is a seated ham curl. So everyone's like, oh, seated ham curl, oh, lengthened position. Yes, a seated ham curl trains a more lengthened position than a lying ham curl, because you are in more hip flexion, you are thus lengthening the hamstrings. But if you ask me where the hardest part of a hamstring curl is, it is still the short position. It's still the bottom of the hamstring curl, the, the point at which your muscle is squeezing or contracted. And so we're gonna talk about the relevance of those two things in a second, but I just feel like that it's important to be like, hey, like when you're doing an incline curl, and your arm, you're in a bit of shoulder extension, your arm is a bit behind the body, your bicep is in a more lengthened position. But if you ask where is the hardest part of the incline curl, it is in the mid range when your forearm is perpendicular to the line of force. And so just that might be, you know, mental masturbation to some degree, but I, I don't think it is. I think it is at least a relevant thing. And so when you think of, and sometimes there's enough overlap and I'm gonna shut up in a second, but I think it's important to just be able to say, okay, like we're gonna hear a lot about like short and lengthened, there is a difference between the position the muscle is in and being trained in that position and where the exercise is hardest. And they are both relevant to, in some cases, how much hypertrophy we get, how much fatigue we get. Um, and so let's, I'll let you go with a little bit of like, why is a resistance profile relevant for hypertrophy and why is the training position relevant for hypertrophy? Yeah, uh, where I wanted to go with this real quick was just that, you know, some movements don't even have, like th that this whole conversation is only relevant to movements that have like a short position because there's, there's many movements that don't even have a short position. Like you think RDL or you think squat or whatever, like any of those movements, they don't go short. They are only lengthened mid-range type overload movements. When you're standing up with your RDL or with your squat, there's no resistance there. So there's no short overload. So for the sake of like this conversation and using partials and reverse drop sets and like all these things that we're going to get into, it's almost like we're only talking about movements that have a short overload resistance profile where either the muscle gets weaker there or the movement itself is just overloaded there. Yeah, totally agree. That is a good point where 
there are some movements that, like you said, will drop off to zero more or less um, in that short position, like when you're standing up in a squat or standing up at the top of an RTL and the joints are stacked. So, yep, absolutely, totally makes sense. And and yeah. when we get to like when we get to like uh, fixing the issue of things that are really hard to work in the length of position, we'll obviously talk about like which exercises would be good for that. Yeah. 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 So why is it relevant for hypertrophy? Um, I think it's mostly relevant because for years, people have grown off almost only lengthened overload movements. I mean, if you go back before the invention of machines and stuff, like you're doing a free weight, everything, you're only training lengthened overload movements and people were getting super jacked in that time. So it's only relatively recently that we've even began training things like short overload movements, shit, even a leg extension, like sure they trained the rec fem back in the day, but they did it with a sissy squat or something like that, which is a lengthened version of doing a leg extension. Um, on, so on, for not this, to, not to cut you off on that. Cause I think this is yeah. an important thing. I actually have a, a counterpoint in, in the sense that there's a part of what I want to talk about that will get to the point of how important is our discussion that we're having right now. And what you said is really great where it's like, we people have been growing without the ability to do some of these like manipulations via, let's say you have a prime machine, you could change the resistance profile, whatever. But but people have been training uh, for decades and you know more than that with short overload only for let, let's say back training. And so like people have been growing their backs with only short overload movement. So like, I think, I think, you, I think of it as like, Peck, peck exercise. People have been growing great pecs with only lengthened overload movements. But when we talk about free weights, which we'll talk about later, that like if you do a dumbbell press or even a dumbbell fly or a push up or the stuff that everybody grew pecs on for the first 50 years of like proper resistance training, it was only uh, lengthened overload. And then, you know, we look at something like back where people just did rows and pull ups and got super mega fucking jacked backs only doing their, you know, and they might've, which interesting is now that this is words coming out of my mouth. Maybe they were yeah, doing some of the stuff that we're talking about right now, where they were working into the deeper parts of fatigue and getting into that length of position. But yes, yeah, so I was they, just going to yeah, suggest yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really, really yeah. astute uh, observation. Um, yeah. And as, as I was going through my little monologue there, I didn't even think about the fact that no, that still, even though it was all free weights, though, the back was still going to be short overloaded, but pretty much every other muscle group that you're working for the most part is like a mid range length and overload type thing. I don't even think like how you would work triceps in a short overload with, with free weights, but, um, uh, biceps probably could, but anyways, um, so the reason I think it's relevant is because now we're, we're 50, 60 years later, we have all of this new knowledge. Um, and what we realize is that the movement really that, that fails short is able to have so much more of the range of motion that could potentially be effective. So, like you, you can even think of this listener as, as like any row or, or pull down movement that you've ever done. And as soon as you can't get any more reps, you could get 90% of the next rep or then 80%, then probably 75, then 65. And you could probably get nine or 10 more reps, depending on how heavy the weight was when you started before you actually aren't moving the thing anymore. Um, and how relevant is that? Uh, we don't exactly know, but I think that there's enough studies at this point leaning towards uh, the importance of A, training at long muscle lengths and B, overloading the length in position. And I think that it's very ambiguous at this point as to which of those two is more important, but I have a hypothesis that it's probably overloading the length in position, i.e. making it hardest where the, the muscle is strongest. 
Um, and if nothing else, that would then even out the resistance curve more, because if you're doing something that is already short overloaded, then by making it harder at the bottom, you're just kind of making it even all the way through. So, um, so I think that there's a lot of ways in which it can be relevant for hypertrophy. Um, it can also be a tool for progression, which is something that I know we're going to get into. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. I think at the, I think when we look at a spectrum of, Shorter muscle length, longer muscle length. Shorter overload resistance profile, more lengthened overload resistance profile. I think generally if we move over to, towards the longer length and the more lengthened overload resistance profile, I think we're moving closer to things that are gonna cause more hypertrophy. I don't know where exactly that line in the sand ends of it being too extreme. Do we need the most extreme training position and the most extreme resistance profile? Is that the most hypertrophy? But I think in general, if we we're looking at it on a spectrum and we draw an arrow, we're probably going from like short overload and short position. And we're drawing that arrow of like more hypertrophy over to more lengthened position, more lengthened resistance profile. Again, I'm not necessarily sure where that line in the sand is in the sense of like how biased do we need it to be? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I've been waiting for Kaz to talk about about this a little bit and I don't know if he talked about it somewhere I think it was on the first revive stronger podcast with Mike um, when they were talking about the hack and I think he said uh, that he would probably hypothesize and it'd be fun for us to shoot the shit on this I've been thinking about that exact same question is which of these not to take this too far for the listener but like which of these is more important is it more important for me to train and the, the example I put here, and I'm gonna pose it to you, is what is better for hypertrophy? The seated ham curl, which is a lengthened hamstring position because you start in hip flexion. You start in a seated position with your hips bent, which lengthens the hamstring. Or, but, but that machine has a short overload curve, meaning at the bottom where the hamstring is shorter, given that range of motion, it is the hardest. Or would you take a lying hamstring curl that has a resistance profile that biases the length of position? So now I'm training the hamstring in a shorter position because I'm more hip in more hip extension. I'm, I, my, body, my body is straighter, um, but I am gonna make the exercise, whether that was with a prime piece of prime equipment or some magic dust, I'm gonna make this harder in the bottom portion of that movement. And I think Kaz actually said he would probably take the lengthened training position over the lengthened resistance profile so mm -hmm. long as the resistance profile of the movement doesn't suck and so he's like mm -hmm. if you take like a, he would take let's say a an incline curl with a dumbbell which is a length of position with a decent resistance profile it's in the mid-range versus let's say a preacher curl that was hardest in the length of position those might be two extremes because we're talking about an arm in a bicep position that's very short versus one that's more lengthened but i found that interesting and it, it was interesting enough because he wasn't even so sure that it 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 brings us to this point of like if kaz is not sure and you and i are hypothesizing about this then chances are we have we again we come back to that spectrum of like well we're just probably just generally general want to move it generally in this direction towards lengthened-ish stuff. Um, whether that's resistance profile or training position, probably a good idea to do either of those. But I would pose that to you. And if we have this scenario of like, I, I just, let's say I buy the prime lying leg curl and I can put it to a length of resistance profile, would you bet that there'd be much of a difference or would you, would you put, what would you place your money on? Yeah, this would of course assume that that the goal is what mechanical damage right, during sure. this period of time. Right, that, yeah, yeah. Um, Bread and butter, so, one set to failure, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting that Cass said that about the, the seated leg curl training at long that muscle wasn't, lengths. That wasn't his, that was my example. He, I don't think he was, was giving an example. His was more like just like a general hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah more ambiguous. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think the qualifier that you said that he said that, that it would have to have a good resistance uh, yeah, good enough, yeah. curve as well. Yeah, that that's important because like I have a seated leg curl machine and I can adjust 
um, where it's hardest up to a point. I can't put it f- fully lengthened because then the whole, the arm will fall over the top and whatever, it doesn't work. Um, but, uh, I can make it mid range or I can make it really, really short. And when I make it even like any variation of short overload, I get to the top of that rep at the stretch position and it just kind of feels like nothing's happening. So that's probably a problem with my machine that, that it's just, you know, it's a home built model. It drops so, off a ton, yes. you're saying at the top. Uh, at the, if, if you set it to short overload, then at the length and position, there's, it's there's rest. almost no yeah, resistance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I almost will always set it to a mid range right. overload, which is about as lengthened as I can get it on my machine. Um, just because it feels even that way where everything is kind of equally, uh, hard, um, so it feels almost ineffective when I set it short because there's just no resistance for the first third of the movement or whatever. Um, so to answer the question, man, like my hypothesis on this question is actually the opposite of what you said, you know, Cass was theorizing. And I really think that it's, it's making that length and position the hardest um, because it's already, the muscles already weak in the short position. So like, to me, the idea of evening out that resistance curve and actually challenging the muscle equally at the point where the muscle is the strongest makes the most sense. Um, so especially when you call a phase of training mechanical damage, and we know that more damage comes from, you know, working through that lengthened position with, with heavy loads, like it just kind of intuitively makes sense to me that that would be more important. Yeah. And, and I also think that it comes down to maybe the difference in training position. If we're talking about a lying hamstring curl that has you in 70 degrees of hip flexion or hip, whatever, however you would look at those degrees and the seated ham curl is 30 more degrees of hip flexion and the resistance profile is much bigger delta between the two than I might take wherever the bigger delta is. Um, and I think of the lat pull around and the pull down, and I, and I think of, would I want a a bilateral iliac and one pull down with a lengthened resistance profile, or would I just want to do pull arounds where I can get that lat more lengthened? And th- what's cool is we don't have to do either or, we can do both. And the thing is we can, we can integrate a way of making the best of both worlds, which I think is what I'd love to talk about today, which is like, um, I guess we can transition to that. And so let's say we have, I'm going to just paint a small picture here. I should have thought this out a little bit more, but when we talk about just like I want people to understand that like when we talked about the strength curve and so the strength curve means that just in general, as the muscle gets shorter, it's going to get weaker. And so for a lot of exercises where let's say you're working with cables where that exercise doesn't change the resistance throughout the movement, whatever was 15 pounds at the top of the movement, it's 15 pounds at the bottom movement. A lot of those movements are going to be short overload. And so they're going to be hardest where you are weakest because the weight doesn't really change. And I'm not changing uh, my, my torso position to affect the resistance profile. Like you could in something like a press around or something like that. And so, which again, you could do, um, how can we make some exercises like, let's just use the iliac pull down. So everyone who's listened to anybody, Brian's Instagram or mine at some point, you know, or anybody on N1, you've seen the iliac pull down, chest supported, arms almost overhead. That exercise is a wonderful exercise, trains iliac lats, fantastic, but it is categorically hardest at the bottom because it's just going to be 110 pounds at the top and 110 pounds at the bottom. And where am I going to be weaker at handling 110 pounds at the bottom? And so we have this issue of like, wow, what a great exercise, but you know, we just got finished 
you know, word vomiting for 20 minutes about how lengthened position or lengthened overload is probably better for hypertrophy. And this does neither, because if we want to get the lat more lengthened, we would not be able to do it bilaterally. We would have to grab one handle and, you know, get our arm more in that midline across the body. And if we wanted to change the resistance profile, we can't really do this with typical equipment. And so what might be something that we could do, uh, some things that we could do to say, hey, we're going to take this exercise. It's hardest in the short. It's a good exercise, but we really kind of maybe want a little bit more work in the lengthened. How could we go about making that happen? Yeah, this gets into our conversation. So I think the when you look at kind of the different things that you can do to emphasize that length and position, there are some that are just going to be like much more dramatic and profound of an effect than others. And so as I kind of go through the design of my mesocycles where I follow this idea of progressing the stimulus, which seems so, so silly. Cause I actually heard a podcast with Brian Miner the other day where he was like, you totally don't need to progress the stimulus every day. And I was like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but anyways, so, so, uh, so I like this idea of progressing the stimulus. And the reason that I, I like this idea is, is no, I don't actually think that, you know, to get muscle growth that you have to do more every single session you go in, because that's, that's unrealistic. I don't believe that. Um, but I do think that there is something psychologically to getting small wins every day. And so, as I talked about on our last episode, there's, there's, there's fractional loading, which is great. I love fractional loading, but there's also things like we're going to discuss today. And, and I, I use a lot of these methods to to uh, enhance the length and position as methods of progression within my training. So as I'm going through a mesocycle and I'm, I'm looking at these short overload movements that might be more conducive to using uh, these lengthened overload techniques, the first thing I do is usually gradually decrease my RIR. So I'll start at something like, you know, two or one to two RIR for a short overload movement. We know they're not super damaging. It's all good. I don't need to start at four RIR for those lifts. Um, I'll do like one to two for a week. Then I'll do like one or zero to one for a week. And then usually by the third week of my mesocycle, I usually will get into the first step of this progression in partials. Um, and I think that partials are just going to be the least significant of an impact. And honestly, I don't know how much more fatigue they're going to cause. I, I think it's going to be relatively negligible compared to just going to failure on a short overload movement. Um, so you'll, so just to be thorough, you'll let's see, pick an exercise just for context. And then you'll, you won't integrate the partials upon reaching failure. You might still stop at a one RIR and then move to partials or like, are you're using it? Uh, you could go both ways. I'll let you answer. Go ahead. Yeah. So in week one of the meso, I would probably do like a, a one to two RIR for a short overload movement, like a leg extension. Yeah. A leg extension. Yeah. Leg extension, cable row, something like that. Yeah. Then the, in week two, I would, I would go to zero to one RIR. Would you, would you not to cut you off just again, to be thorough. I'm, I'm, the, I am, I am the listener here. Um, we, are you thinking that from my one to two RIR or two to one or whatever in week one, I'm, you, I, this is more of a personal question of like, are you actively yeah recalibrating RIR on a week to week? Are you going after an assumption of, which is a nuanced assumption of potential neurological gains that I've made from last week. Plus if I just probably do a little bit more than that RIR will naturally fall. Are you, how much are you uh, recalibrating RIR specifically on a week to week versus like a very general, Hey, I know I'm going to get some neurological gains. So I'll probably be a little bit stronger, but I also, if I just do a little <laughs> bit more, I'm probably ballpark where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So actually in week one of a new meso, I, I don't look at my logbook before doing my sets because I just want to 
go to what I believe is one to two yep. RIR. And Great. I want that to be my baseline for the cycle. And then after I finish the set, I'll go back and look and be like, okay, this is where I was the prior time I tried to hit one to two RIR in this movement or whatever. For week one, um, that I agree that that's exactly, totally. I'm saying after you've yeah. done that, and you, yeah. I, I stressed uh, just to, for context, I'll stress to my group, my clients that if you're ever going to assess RIR, that first week is probably the most important. And so like, that's you, you're like, I'm going to go in there and I'm really just going to scrap my expectations and I'm going to try and really hone in on that RIR. But like when you're moving yeah. from there, you know? Yeah. Then I'll add, you know, five to 10 pounds the next week, nominally, um, whatever, whatever it is, I'm just going to add five to 10 pounds and then I'm going to go to zero to one RIR. And if that's the same amount of reps that I got the prior week, great. If it's a rep less, which it usually is, then, then that's fine too. Um, I don't, I don't really worry too much about it. I just try to hit the, the desired RIR for those first few weeks. Cool. Um, so then in week three, what would happen is now I'm like, okay, I, I'm at zero to one RIR. Um, usually at that point, I will institute some partials into my final set for that movement. Um, I also like, it, it's kind of, it's dependent. So this is, you know, a very general, uh, template that I'm outlining, but, but I also will take progression if I can get it without having to move into partials. So if like I go into week three and I'm, I, I, I'm supposed to be doing partials because I went zero to one RIR the prior week, but I'll use the same weight I did the prior week. And then if I can get an extra rep and not have to do partials to progress the stimulus type thing, then I'm not going to, I'll save the partials for week four and not, not need them at that point. Um, so the partials are, are a way for me to do more, but if I can do more without doing partials, then I don't need to, to do partials type by type idea. You know what I mean? Um, it's just at this point, like 25 years in, like I can almost predict to like a rep what I'm going to get each week over the next five weeks. And I maybe once or twice I'll surprise myself and maybe once or twice I'll, I'll be underwhelmed with, with my performance, but the rest of the time it'll be like exactly as I expect it to be. Yep. Um, yep. I love that. I think that there's, um, there's such an, exp when I think of partials, we're going to get to this in a second. Partials, in there's a lot of ways we can use them, which we talk about. You, our first topic right now, just to like recap, is like using partials as a form of progression and in specifically this context when other progression, forms of progression have not been met. It's almost like you're, you're ace in the hole, your backup plan. You're like, well, I was planning on getting 13 today. I got, you know, or I was, you know, if I could have gotten 13, I would, but I've, I've gotten to 12 and I'm not going to hit that 13th one. So in an attempt to, you know, progressively overload, progressive stimulus, quote, do a little bit more, uh, especially with an exercise that like a leg extension and you use the, the pull down example before it's like when you're done with full range of motion on the leg extension and you cannot do that 13th full range of motion rep, guess what you can do a 13th partial rep, whether that's 90 or 80 or 70 or 60 or 50% or just moving the fucking thing a tiny bit, you can do something. And so that is an opportunity. When people talk about like, oh, you're not going to be able to do more every single week. I think as a general construct, that is totally true. But when we start to look at like, okay, well, if we break it into smaller opportunities for progression, um, I think a very experienced, intuitive lifter who knows himself and has all these tools can probably go up in something every week somewhere, especially yeah. if we see partials as like a, 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 a intellectually adequate way to do that, which I think it is. Um, no, I agree. So partials are usually like step one in, in the repertoire. And um, as the mesocycle goes on, you know, I'm assessing my fatigue and how many more weeks I think I might have left and things like that. 
And then after partials, uh, usually it will start to move into some of the other things that, that we have listed here as, as the different ways that we can accentuate that length and position. And, and most of these are are uh, are going to be more of like a sledgehammer approach than what partials are, because essentially when you're doing a partial, you're doing a partial because the short position has already failed because you're weak at this like really weak position. Um, but you still have like all of this energy left for the, for the rest of the movement. These other techniques, well, not one and a quarter reps. I, I actually think uh, one and a quarter reps are kind of something that I almost would program as just like right out of the gate, a staple yeah. right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but most of these other things are, are going to be ways that are going to be more damaging and more of like this sledgehammer where partials are maybe more of a finesse approach. Do you find yourself adding, and this is how my brain would, uh, would see it. It's like a, there's some element of this whole game that is conceptual and intellectual and then practically applicable. And so like when we talk about like what might be optimal, it's like well, I'm, I also need to make it clean for my brain and for a client's brain to be able to know how to go about seeking these progressions. And so you might say, okay, I'm going to start with if I don't match or if I don't beat a full range of motion set from last week on my last set, I might incorporate a partial. Would you mm -hmm. progress to adding partials on more sets? I mean, you could, the answer is you could. I'm just curious yeah. what, what might be in your brain in terms of like lo logically going through that. Yeah, I, I usually don't. Um, but sometimes, yeah, you know, no, I don't really. I mean, I'm thinking about past times. I'm like, I have, like you said, it's kind of just like one of those things like, end of a muscle cycle, you know, you know, you're about to take a deload week, you know, why not throw one in on like the second set two or something like that. But I, I like the, um, I, I think they are more fatiguing, obviously, like you can't do a set with partials in it and then come back and do a set without partials and think that like performance is going to be anything worthwhile at that point, right? Like you've, you've kind of already done the thing, hit the stimulus as hard as you could at that point. I don't know that there's much to do after that. Um, so I think it's something that you and I both know intuitively that I'm going to try and put into words of like, if it's a muscle group that is also getting hit in more length into positions. So if you, if you have this leg extension example, yeah, you're going to add some partials as a way to progress this stimulus because for a number of reasons, some of which are just uh, like logistically, you, it's like, it's a nice challenge to try and do a little bit more each time, but it's probably not as important for you to be like, yeah, I really need to hammer these lengthened partials in my leg extension because you have a ton of, you know, other lengthened quad lengthened. movements. And when I think of my back training right now, my back training is all short position work. And so I catch myself and maybe, listen, maybe it's, uh, there's an individual difference genetically, how we recover. So I'm sure people get plenty freaking sore with their back training. And not that soreness is a be all end all, but it is one of the proxies we have for work that you've done uh, and hypertrophy that has occurred. But I catch myself not getting sore, good, crazy pumps, disruption, all some of these proxies that we have for growth, unless I do some of these uh, intensity technique, partial mm -hmm. length and stuff. And I just catch myself like, if it's something where I'm doing three to five back exercises in my program, let's say back is a huge muscle, but we're just you know, with many muscles. Um, I catch myself seeing like, you know, there's no, lengthened overload work here at all. I don't have a hammer strength row machine where I can do a lengthened overload resistance profile. I don't have a prime piece of equipment. And so it's almost like, 
Um, you know, my quads are getting two or three exercises that are all hardest in really the, their length and training position and they're overloaded in the length and position. You have a squat, we have a split squat, we have a hack squat, we have a pendulum squat. Not Obviously not all in the same program, but one or two of those at least. And, you know, my back doesn't have anything like that. And so it doesn't have any of these movements that are lengthened overload and lengthened training position. It doesn't have any of those. And so I catch myself looking at my training and I'm like, I've been finding that my the way I look at my training in terms of, can I tell I've gotten a good stimulus, whether that's, you know, intra-workout pump, some form of sensation, disruption, soreness, that by integrating not a ton, but quite a bit of some of these more lengthened overloaded or uh, like lengthened overload techniques via partials and stuff like that has been massively beneficial because that muscle group doesn't get a lot of this, yeah, pull arounds or lengthened training position, sure, whatever, totally. I think that that's the one caveat here of like, that's something I'm getting that's fairly lengthened position, but it's interesting. Uh, I think that some, like I wouldn't, I, I would do these lengthened partials in a hamstring curl, totally, that makes perfect sense. But I would I would probably also be like, you know, I'm, I'm getting quite a bit of that in RDLs and stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I feel like the hamstring curl example is interesting though, because you're doing knee flexion. True. Then that's so fair. it's that's like fair. it well played. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, to me, that's a bit of a different example. True. Um, going back to the back though, man, I don't think my back's been sore in years, and and I even use these techniques and stuff. It's just this big, like durable muscle group that that doesn't get sore unless there's extreme novelty. And the example there being like. I went uh, to Mexico in February and brought my angles grips, hung them from the dock and did, I think, 75 pull-ups. Uh, like in one set. I don't <laughs> yeah, right. But I think I think I went like like 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, or something like that, like with this short rest as I could. And my lats were sore for like four days. You know, yeah. so so it's like novelty does it, but in, in my gym, I, I can use all these techniques. I do more volume for my back than every other muscle group and all this stuff. And it still doesn't get sore. Um, but I'm very confident that it's effective. And you can see that through like the pumps, through the fatigue, through the execution of the movement and the setup and things like that. Um, but because the back is like this big, resilient, durable thing that like you can just beat to shit or most people can, um, I think it's even more relevant that that we talk about these these lengthened movements for the back, like like you like you said or alluded to, you know, the hamstrings and the the quads. Like fuck, you could do your leg extensions and leg curls short overloaded for eternity, and just RDL and squat pattern movement, and your legs are going to be fine. I'm sure there might be some additional advantage to to doing these things, but I think the back is really where the money is to be made with these techniques. Yep. Let's, uh, I want to talk specifically about reverse drop sets, uh, finding, finding them particularly, I think using partials as a form of progression with short overload movements as our first topic has been super, I wanted to use the word fun, but like fun is something that we shit on sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's, not about, it's supposed to be, it's not about fun. But like, I find it super fun because, because my definition of fun is finding ways to progress, finding ways to squeak out a little bit more, finding ways to be a little bit more time efficient, uh, effort efficient. And so I find them to be in that way, super, super fun. Reverse drop sets are other ones that I find extremely fun, which we'll talk about in a second. But I just want to say like, we're like, we're blowing the whole length of position here, right? The length of position is the best, reverse, or, uh, you know, lengthened resistance profile, training position, that's the best, we just do that. And let's talk about like, is short position work slash trying to actively bias the short position with a resistance profile? Um, is it even necessary if our goal is hypertrophy? Like what's a sort of discussion we could have there? 
I mean, I think when you're looking at the the optimality piece and not the practicality piece as much that, yeah, sure. Like, you know, if you're going to go into a metabolic cycle, you're not going to do that with a ton of lengthened overload movements. Um, but again, you could even argue like, do I need to go into a metabolic cycle? So, you know, it, it goes back to what I said about like the 1940s, 50s, like they were doing dumbbells and barbells almost exclusively and developing really phenomenal physiques for, for their day. I mean, even for today, they would be great natural bodybuilders, not as lean as these guys, but as far as size, they, they were right there. Um, so, you know, I, <laughs> I feel very torn on this question because uh, my, my intuition, my knee jerk response is that we use short overload movements almost exclusively to mitigate fatigue, but still achieve stimulus. And if that's their purpose so that you can accrue more volume without having to, to be, um, as deep in the hole in this fatigue thing, then I think that for no other reason that that's a purpose. Yeah, it's a tricky one because a counter a counter would be, you know, if I need more volume, but I only have so much recoverability fatigue that I can still incur, like could instead of doing three leg extensions, could I survive one more set of hack squat? You know, I, and I, I'm not I'm not posing that as my position, but that is a thought of like, well, yeah, I need more volume, but I don't have much room for fatigue. OK, well, do you have enough? What, what would be a better balance of those two things? SFR wise, let's say. And so. I don't know. Part of me thinks that there's a default answer of regional hypertrophy. I think that there's got to be some fibers that are going to work harder at certain parts of that range of motion. And so like as a default, if you're trying to eke out every inch of gains, there's going to be certain parts of the quad closer to the knee that are going to work harder in knee extension. And so closer to the hip in some of those, you know, knee and hip ex uh, flexion extension movements. And so that regional hypertrophy is one that comes to mind of like that's that definitely exists in, in how much. I don't know, but it exists for sure. And then... And then there's the metabolic argument. And then there's the metabolic argument. And then there's like a, you know, the, the, the yes, you, you get more. And when I say metabolic, to me, the first thing that mostly comes to mind is nutrient partitioning, um, mm -hmm. driving AMPK, like being better at pushing glucose into the cell. Like those, those things are probably what are, those adaptations are better in the short position when you work the short position, whatever. Um, but the then the, the follow-up argument is like, how much of that is necessary if the goal is hypertrophy? But I think regional hypertrophy for me just like closes the book on like, you should, if your goal is what's optimal to probably do it. And usually some of these short position movements, you're right, they are less fatiguing. And I and I almost think like even that counter argument of the hack squat or the leg extension, I almost think like maybe emotionally you couldn't do another hack squat, but maybe emotionally you can go sit down and do the leg extension. And that might be a stability yeah. argument, but I think that there's still some of that that is like, well, practically if I need my, my client or myself to get the best quads, maybe they look at their program and see six sets of hack and they're like, I, I just can't. But maybe they see four sets of hack and four sets of leg extension and total volume wise, it might be the same volume as a proxy for whatever muscular work. And, 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 but maybe that is emotionally, they can deal with that more. Yeah, no, the regional hypertrophy is a really good point. I, I can't like pick it out of the back of my brain right now, but I feel like they actually did some sort of study on that knee extension example you referenced where it was like, it did show that the part by the knee grew more at the short position and that the part uh, closer to the hip grew more at the lengthened position. I, I wish I could remember where I, where I read that. But that is also um, what I'm referencing, but I also will not yeah. be able to pull the direct reference out of it. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I think that we would see similarly some of the same stuff with like biceps too. Um, like imagine if you're only doing like face away curls as like the only bicep movement that you're doing. So, um, so no, I agree. I mean, 
when you program a, a hypertrophy or like a mechanical damage cycle, like what percentage of, of your sets or whatever are, are lengthened versus short are, are lengthened position or lengthened resistance profile have something involved that's right. lengthened and have an eye yeah. towards lengthened uh, yeah. 75% or more probably. Yeah. 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 And I might, even, I would say and similarly. I might even, and I might, I might even just have that be for hypertrophy. You know, the more I'm like, I'm not, like, there's that argument of like where just bread and butter mechanical tension phase, you know, like not trying to get meta mega fucking sore and drive damage and, and you know, mechanical damage phase and not trying to get metabolic, maybe like bread and butter hypertrophy. Maybe I want to be in that 75, 25. And I just think if, mm -hmm. if you just usually as a knee jerk, somebody asks me in a Q and a, I'll say a two to one, you know, two to one is just like, is a way of just saying, Hey, more, more, probably more <laughs> lengthened work, you know, um, because I'm not actually like counting sets at this point. It's a bit intuitive of like, I'm probably gonna have more lengthened work if I'm just like lying ham curl, leg extension, hip extension, you know, adductor. Uh, well, that's probably not even, and then everything else is lengthened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so m more than short position. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's no, talk sure. let's talk about uh let's talk about reverse drop sets let's uh everyone's heard of slash done a drop set drop set is essentially where you do a set close to failure full range of motion and then at a given rir or whatever your coach says you lower the weight as an opportunity to push further into fatigue and you could do more reps essentially um so walk us through i'm not sure if you've been the like you said that we talked a little bit off air that like maybe you didn't invent this um but you introduced <laughs> it to me uh and that's where i'm going to give the credit and so i'd love to hear your discussion of re reverse drop sets kind of just what it is and then we'll get into some specifics in terms of like give an example and we'll kind of walk through them as a cycle yeah yeah for sure uh yeah i definitely cannot take credit for this but i was telling you like you know off air that i've received a few dms from people that are like up in arms and angry that in i'm bulgaria like, promoting like, this my uncle in bulgaria has been doing this for millennia <laughs> You think you're the first one to do lengthened partials on a short overload movement? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. All right. yeah, yeah. Guy has no you. picture on his profile, um, no posts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I don't want to try and take credit for the idea, but I, I learned it from Cass. I mean, straight up, we had a conversation about it. Like it wasn't a post or anything, but I, I inquired with him like, hey, dude, what are some great ways that I could accentuate the length and position? And that was one of his best pieces of advice. So I just kind of took it and ran with it and, and made it my own. Um, but essentially what the idea is, is it's, um, you know, in your example of a typical drop set, you would go, like you said, to failure basically, and then you would reduce the weight and you would keep going again, theoretically to failure in a reverse drop set. I think there's quite a good argument to stop just shy of failure, um, at full reps on a short overload movement, because what's going to happen in a reverse drop set is that you're going to really quickly, basically just change the weight as quickly as you can. So if you're doing like a dumbbell row, you have the other dumbbell right next to you. If you're doing a cable row, you just slide the pin into the stack. And what you're going to do is add about 20% load to what you were doing. So imagine you're doing a, a row and you're doing a hundred pounds and you're, you're, you're failing. You can't even get another rep. And then you go and you put 120 on there. You're basically already failed. You're not gonna be able to move the thing very much. But if you just go just shy of failure on that set, maybe one, two, three RIR, depending on, on the movement and, and how much you want to increase for the reverse drop set, then, uh, you change that weight to 120 and you basically accrue what inevitably will probably be partial reps. I think it's possible that you could get a one full rep on the first rep because you'll have like a 10 or 15 second rest as you change the weight. There'll be a little bit of recovery that takes place. Maybe you get a full rep 
Maybe you don't. I don't exactly think it matters. Um, usually what I try to do on the reverse drop set is match a similar number of reps to what I achieved on the initial set. So say I rode 100 pounds for eight reps, then I would take my quick break. I would throw 120 on there and I would try to row 120 for eight reps, understanding that one or none of those reps would actually be a complete full range of motion rep. The key being that you're initiating the movement with the intent the entire time. Because what what often happens when people know that the weight is too heavy and they can't actually get the rep is they start doing this like explosive launching, like hitching, throwing thing out of the bottom of the rep. And that is not at all what we want to be doing. Like if you're, it's a lat focused movement and the reason you're doing this is for your lats, then the movement should initiate with the humeral depression, the elbow driving down toward the hip and whatever range of motion you can get is what's confined by, uh, the, the movement technique that you want to be using. Yep. Some of the things that I, so I've been put, I've put them I'm in a mechanical damage phase, let's say right now, where we're just gently experimenting with a little bit more of that stuff. And so I, I'm at home training and I, and, uh, I was like, all right, we're just going to do a, a buttload of these reverse drop sets just to throw myself into the water of like understanding how they feel, but also understanding how I might conceptualize progression with them, which we'll talk about in a second. And a couple of things that I thought that have come to mind for me is that I actually find that can do more than I expected. So you had said, okay, what you definitely don't want to happen is you definitely don't want to go so far to failure in the first set that when you make it heavier, it's not productive. You're like two reps in and all of a sudden you can barely start the thing. Um, I find that I, and that is hundred percent true. I agree with you hundred percent. What I found is, and I'll kind of reason why, why that might be is that actually when I, when I go to failure and then increase the load, I have, and maybe it's because of that 15 second rest, I bought myself some kind of a bit of a drop in fatigue. Um, I find out I have more in me than I gave myself credit for. And I almost feel like, um, uh, and that's maybe just me calibrating how high and load, how much of a load jump I'm using and and learning this sort of technique. Um, but I just feel like if you're out there, PS in the group at some point will be doing reverse drop sets as I'm starting to conceptualize them a bit more. But I just find that people can maybe err on a slightly heavier side. And I know that you have commented on an earlier set of mine and you were like, you know, when I switched to the re the reverse drop set side, I made it heavier. I started doing my partials. You're like, the partials are too big. I was like, the partials are too big. You didn't make it heavy yeah. enough. And so that is yeah. something that I found is like, actually, I have more in me in those partials than I expected. Uh -huh. um, and another thought is like a counter thought to a reverse drop set is this is um, directly, like you, if you do reverse drop set, you are actively not using partials as a progression in some way. And what I mean by that is like, the first example we gave is, we'll use the iliac pull down, is you can take your set full range of motion to failure, and then you're gonna do some partials with the same weight, and you're just gonna roll right into it. And so when you, when you do reverse drop set, you're actively choosing not to do that. And you are choosing to instead stop a bit shy of failure, go a little bit heavier. And my thought, and maybe I, you, you as somebody who's probably been thinking about this a bit more, my thought as to why would I want to do the reverse drop set versus this partial is that when I can't do 100% of the range of motion on the pull down, I'm not going to immediately only be able to do the first 30 to 50%. I'm going to be able to do 90 and then 85 and then 80 and then 75. And by the time I get to a range that I would consider the most hypertrophic, which we could just fucking ballpark say is the length and half of the movement. It's probably closer to length and third of the movement, maybe, um, but it's certainly in the length and half is that this ex ex accelerates that process where like if I go from leg extensions and, and I'm kicking my legs all the way up to full knee extension and I'm getting 100% of the range of motion and I get to failure, 
I'm gonna drop to like 90% and then 85 and 80 and 80 and 75 and 70. And by the time I get to that length in 50, it's gonna be like 10 more reps. And so this to me feels like such a fucking smart way to forget. Yes, I want full range of motion. I want the regional hypertrophy from getting my muscle fully short. I want some of the joint benefits, some of the metabolic benefits. But if I want to, to then make this exercise as a whole in that like 50% lengthened phase, let me just jack this weight up a little bit so that I can only do that first 50%. Is that kind of the reasoning that you would see as well? Yeah. I mean, that's why I call it a sledgehammer because you're not just like getting to the length and position out of straight up fatigue. You're like forcing your way in there. You're like burrowing your way through the hole, making that hole wider, peering in and being like, oh, there's some shit in here that I need to do, you know? Um, so that's exactly the way I look at it as well. Let's talk about two things that come to mind. One, and I want to be respectful of the time. So if you got to go, you tell me. And I got 30 minutes, but okay. I got till 1230. Cool. Yeah. We probably won't use all that, but that's good. And so okay. um, I don't like you that much, but it's uh, um, if is how partial is something we're going to talk about. And what was the other one? Um, and how do we, so how partial, how much heavier, how far do I stop? And there's a bunch of questions here. I'd rather just focus on the how partial and how do we deal with the subjectivity of added partials? Where, where are you? where are you stopping? What are, what is a partial to you? How do we deal with the subjectivity? How partial is partial? And how would you communicate that to somebody who you're not sitting with who needs to do this? Yeah, we kind of broached this initially. You were a bit skeptical of the same thing on our, on our first podcast too. Um, so, so as a guy that loves diagnostics, I fully understand and empathize with, with what you're saying. Um, can I start? I'm going to just set, set the stage. Yeah. Uh, what I, whatever yeah, we say here, I think, is a heuristic and an attempt to bring some structure and applicability to this. So when I was, I was trying to work through this because I know that intuitively I look at my program and I think very much so of like a just progress somewhere. And if you could just progress somewhere, if you can start with hard training, progress somewhere for five weeks and then recalibrate, that to me is like 95% of you growing over time. And so if I can just... <clears throat> If I can just get people to get pretty close, um, and if I am going to tell you how partial I want your partials to be, it's it's almost for no other reason than I'm trying to make this digestible. And so whatever you're going to say and whatever I might say about the partials is mostly your decision as a coach to make this easier yeah. because you could do 50%, 40%, 30%, 15 10 and We could spend all day talking about which one of those we might want to use, but at the end of the day, the one that you might pick for you and the one that you might pick for your group is probably has a slightly more of an emphasis on what's gonna get the person to actually get this right close yeah. enough to the bullseye that doesn't feel complicated. So I think most of what we're about to say is mostly a heuristic, a way of, that we want people to think about this as opposed to like, this is partial. Once you do 22%, you gotta cut it off. It's like, well, we might say yeah. that as a way to help you be a make this subjective thing a bit more objective, but it's mostly us doing that than physiologically there's a cutoff point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely ambiguous and it's kind of the exact same question argument about like partial reps and being able to, to just, how do you know that three partials this week was any better than three partials last week? Or do you just do a fourth partial because that's more than the three you did last week type thing. And that's kind of the simplicity of the way that I look at these two. I will say though, that I do look at the range of motion that I achieve on the first one and the last one. So if we're doing a reverse drop set and I say I made eight initial reps and I'm trying to do eight partials, right? I will look at my video footage 
and see how far did I get on the first of the eight partials and then how far did I get on the last of the eight partials um, just because I want to be able to have that kind of diagnostic ability to say I did or didn't get further. But truthfully, man, like, and this is a me thing, not a, a how I coach other people thing. Um, I don't need that video. I can feel that every single second, exactly how far I'm getting. And I know that I'm going to stop my partials when it reaches a point where like, there isn't actually any lat doing the work. Like, like you're initiating the movement with, with the elbow breaking, but you're not initiating the movement by, by humoral depression. You know, you're, you're just not getting any um, active range of motion for the muscle you're trying to train. Like that's a telltale sign that, Hey, you actually aren't training your lats anymore. Um, so at that point, you know, you might be at five degrees or 10 degrees of elbow bend. Like it's the very small number. Um, so to get there already, you know, you have to be very, very fatigued and your lats must be fucking smashed by the time you even get there to get to a point that you're basically your brachialis is doing the work instead of your lats. Um, but that, but I will look at that video footage and, uh, for the one or two times I've actually programmed it for clients, uh, like one-on-one -on -one clients, I still haven't put it into group program, but, um, but for one-on-one -on -one clients, it's, it's always been about kind of assessing that range of motion on the final partial rep and seeing um, that they're at least still getting some, some active range of motion there. And I think just for the listener, when you are discussing, Hey, I'm going to try and match my reps from the full range of motion with the partials, that might also be an attempt for you to organize it from the get-go like yeah. versus you, you physiologically more optimal without context that might be with context an optimal way to do it but you yeah neither of us would sit here and be like well if i do eight and six six partials then that's less optimal it's like okay but no, I, there's like, often that's how it usually works out for me i don't often make the full eight reps it's usually 75 to 85 percent of the reps that i end up getting with the partials before the range of motion is so small that i just don't feel it's worthwhile Love that. I totally agree. I almost think that there's a, I like, I quite like a light, heavy approach. Not that it's light, heavy. It's like heavy, heavier, um, something like an eight to 10 to a six to eight, just because I feel like the longer the duration of the total set, mm -hmm. the more I feel like there are some things that could like, whether it's grip or stability that can creep in, uh, even if it's a, a bit lighter, sometimes just the length of time. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm usually in that like eight and six, seven, nine and seven, something like that in mm. that range. But again, not from a physiological, necessarily from a physiologically optimal perspective, but well, maybe getting north of two would be whatever. We could talk about that another time. And when you said kind of like this idea of, actually, I'll go pivot, but one sec. And you're intuition of like, hey, I can kind of tell when I'm breaking with elbow flexion versus humoral yeah. depression. I can start to just kind of feel that the productiveness of this movement isn't where I want it to be. I think that I think that people can get there, number one. I think that that's not unrealistic. So I think you said it kind of like, hey, this is what I do, but I'm, I might agree with you that it's a difficult thing to kind of impart onto others. But I actually think that I love that you said that because I think there are going to be people listening who can take something from that for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that if you were to not be in that position. And like you said, I'm not sure if four partials, you know, if I did a partial at 50%, 30%, 20 and 10, is that more than three partials at 50, 45 and 40, you know, like, uh, and so like uh, at the end of the day, number of reps, number of partials doesn't tell me exactly how much work, but I would 
I would lean heavily on that if I'm the average listener. I wouldn't lean heavy, heavily on that. If your three partials turns into seven partials, I'd bet seven was more work than three. And so I agree with you that we can, We it's always about layering the objective with the subjective. It's layering the three to four is good. Four to five is probably good. Four, five to six is probably good. Can I layer that objective nature of the numbers going up with subjectively, internally, starting to become a bit more of an experienced lifter being inside, you know, talk, people talk about stay in the lats, you know, starting to feel like what that feels like to be in the muscle and to, you know, true mind muscle connection isn't just a burn or, you know, like a, it just, oh, I feel it here. It's like just being in the muscle and act, almost like, it, like with your brain bringing the origin and insertion closer, we get to this like weird thing <laughs> where you're like really thinking about it super deep like that. But um, I actually think what you said is not too far off. I think people can start to put together, like when am I, when is this starting to be productive? I actually get to a point where my lats, it's funny, it's exactly the point that happens to me where I'll be getting this unreal lat sensation and then out of nowhere, my forearm flexors are on fire because my lats are like, we're done, dude. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're still going, but not really doing anything at the lats. And so I love that. But I do think if, if you're out there and you're going from three to four partials, then four to five partials, five to six partials, you're probably on the right track too. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, as far as progression, like fitting it into a mesocycle or whatever, I haven't fully worked that out. I mean, I'm sure it would be similar to the partials, but because I use reverse drop sets as like a progression after partials, it's like, man, by the time I get to the reverse drop set, I'm maybe like a week away from needing a deload. So I've only had one opportunity to actually do reverse drop sets and then come back the next week and try to do the same movement as a reverse drop set again. And then I was like, all right, I'm, I need to do that. You would you take know, it so. from straight set to rever to add partials to reverse drop set or, or you would go to one of those two? No, I would take it. That's the progression. It goes like two RIR, one RIR, zero RIR, partials, possibly more partials then reverse drop set, then possibly more reverse drop set. When you go so from, that's like a seven week meso. When you go yeah. from adding partials to the transition to going from that to reverse drop set, do you nix those partials, go back to a straight set and then reverse drop set? Yeah, yeah okay, okay. Yeah, you, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. take I, it. I nix the partials, yeah, okay, okay. nix the partials. And that's the part that actually I'm still struggling with as far as exactly how I want to do it too. Because essentially when I go into the partials, I'm going to failure right. and then I'm going into partials. But when I go into the reverse drop set, I'm gonna have to stop a rep or two Correct. shy of failure. So I'm gonna be backtracking, you know, a rep or two to essentially create more stimulus in the back end of that movement. So, so that's, that's something I accept and understand. I just haven't uh, exactly gotten to that point where I've been kind of working through that yeah. many mess of cycles in a row. Yep. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you, you, you're not thinking, how can I progress a reverse drop set for five weeks? You know? <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. They're, like, they're, it's kind of like the hammer to me. It's like, yeah. Hey dude, you, you're now far into your meso. So whether it's the reverse drop set causing the fatigue or it's just accumulated fatigue over the course of the meso, like you're here now, you know? Yeah. There's an interesting thought when it comes to group group programming, because I think efficiency is an umbrella that I think I, I weigh higher than physiological optimality is. And so when I think of a reverse drop set, I think of a hammer, I think of a fucking destruction. It's destruction. It's awesome. And when, and, and that has, you know, two sides to the coin. It is unbelievably stimulative and concomitantly unbelievably fatiguing. And so you know, there's part of me that thinks like, could this work in a lower volume setting where you you have someone who is a time constraint or prefers to train hard and less volume or um, maybe even in a circumstance where you are pushing, you're putting more of the limited time that you have towards other exercises and maybe you only have 
one lat exercise and one upper back exercise. And you're like, well, I really want to get a robust stimulus with these, even if it's not my like, you know, I'm not pushing it as hard as possible. This isn't a back specific mesocycle. Um, I'm thinking of a way, cause you're right, man. I, I'm within my group program. I love either an addition of myos or an addition of partials as a progression deep in a mezzo where it's like this, this fucking the nos you can hit in your car, you know, halfway through the yeah, race. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, you need that last boost for another form of progression. But then I just, I want to see if there's a way. Yeah, you're right. I just don't, I want people to get the benefit of this stuff in a way that they can, that can make sense in their brain that they can get used to, um, which I think adding partials mid-mezzo can totally do. Adding reverse drops at mid-mezzo when they've already been progressing close to and probably at this point all the way to failure and then have to back out towards a one or two RIR, that to me is an intuitive thing that I feel like I could do no problem, but I would, that would, I'm, I'm happy enough when people can, manage reduction of RIR week to week through added load or yeah. reps that, that that would be that step that little step back for a big step forward might be might trip up yeah I could see that but I I, I, I yeah I was just gonna say for the group program I just think logistically it makes a lot more sense to to primarily focus on partials and then you you called it myo reps I, I do rest pause yep. literally the exact same thing but but move yeah I, I use a decent amount of those as intensity techniques too so those are kind of the two primary ones I use in the group programming and then reverse drop sets are like you man I mean I'm glad we're having this conversation because um shit I might have been the one that introduced you to them but like we're both kind of learning this and going through this together and uh and it's cool to be able to to kind of bounce this off somebody I will let you know and my my group via like tagging me and stuff will let you know what it's like when I give them reverse drop sets on something from the get-go um see if you were going to program them program them from the get-go you could do that but it would probably require both the full range of motion and the partials beginning further from failure and just yeah. kind of progressing them on average closer, which brings logistical issues too. Um, you know, I don't know how you do like a, a partial to RIR. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that totally. like, yep. that like blows my mind. So I, if I can't even conceptualize of it, like I wouldn't want to put that you on would need real <laughs> objective endpoint of like, Hey, once you've done 33% of the movement, you're done, you know? And so it's, yeah. it's logistically tough. But what I think what you and I would both say in that moment is like, it's not bullseye or bust. If we can get these people just fucking yeah. close enough, you know, if you can progress the stimulus via starting with trying to progress in the full range of motion set, if you can't try and do another partial, man, if you just get somewhere in that ballpark and you do a little bit more over time, um, I think that that would, I think it, I think it could work, but I don't know. I've thrown myself under the bus a couple of times with like <laughs> trying to put certain techniques in and then I'm like, which I don't mind, but I'm in the group chat, like fucking answering questions every fucking 10 seconds of like, <laughs> yeah. and I screwed it up because I didn't explain it the way I would have liked to, but that's a learning process for sure. All right. Anything else we want to talk about? I think we did a good job. Any closing thoughts that you have? Um, otherwise, we can get you one, out of here. Yeah. One of the notes you had, it was interesting. And actually something I've been thinking about was you, you wrote, I'm trying to find it right now, but something about exploding or using momentum, explosive tempo yep. is, is the phrasing you yep. use. And so that being another way to kind of emphasize lengthened. And it's just something recently I've been, I've been thinking about because you really can accelerate that thing. It's it's like the perfect example is the lateral raise, right? Where you can like use a little momentum from the bottom and then the dumbbells kind of like float up at the top. So it's almost like it's no longer short overloaded. And you can kind of get the same thing with like, you know, if you see people doing bent over rows with like a little bit of a hip pop and, and it makes it so that that short position isn't actually that hard. What I always wonder though is, is it, it's also, it's got to also be making the lengthened position easier. So is it actually accomplishing, like it, it's maybe what it's accomplishing is it's, it's pulling on you more. It's like tugging on you at the bottom of the row when you're in like scap depression, 
but I don't exactly know that it's making the lengthened position of the concentric any more difficult. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense, and it's totally how I feel. So I, I would say, if we're if I was giving the counter to that, it would be that it is not so much an explosiveness in uh, like a like phenotype, like and it actually looks explosive. It's an explosive intent as far as an attempt to put the pedal to the metal initially, like without the introduction of uh, body English to pull with as much concentric intent from the absolute get-go without a destruction of technique and an introduction of mm -hmm. other muscle groups and stuff. However, I don't know how far away that is from what like you should probably be doing 90% of the time anyway, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And so I'm not a... I'm not a big one with the, the only time I will use an explosive intent is maybe with like walking lunges as just like an opportunity to accentuate this like forward propulsion that you get with walking lunges. But I just like, when I think of like deep in a set, three, two, one RIR, like I'm not fucking bullet. This thing is hard. Like, you know, the leg extension example, you know, or the, when we talk about like taking the calves out of the ham curl, you know, we don't want to, you slow on the gas pedal. We, you know, we don't want to rush out of the bottom. All right. Yeah. Okay. That's a totally different argument though, of like what we're trying to do with, with intent in terms of like acceleration through the movement. Yeah. And then the last piece of, I think what could potentially end up in my progression after reverse drop sets, um, because I don't think it will be explosive intent movement like that, um, would probably just be doing partials, but heavier without the, the pre-work first. Right. So it would be like, you know, for right now I'm doing my hip extensions with 75 pounds, but man, the top, like 15% of that movement, 20% or whatever, when the torso crosses the, the plane of the earth, that's just really, really, really hard. Like it's mitigating to the point that it feels like the bottom of the movement is easy, just like it is with a lot of these other movements we've talked about. And that it's just unacceptably hard toward the top, which is great if like you're trying to overload your glutes short. But if I'm trying to use the hip extension to overload my hamstrings long, um, then I think that that for me is, is in my mind, potentially a next progression. Um, cause I just did partials this week. So then next week might be a reverse drop set for my hip extension. And then maybe it's just go to the weight that I was doing for the, uh, reverse drop set partials and just do a full set like that. And maybe I only get one or two full reps and then it's a whole bunch of like little partials until I can barely even lift my torso out of the bottom. Would you add um, that so or that, completely swap for all the sets? Would you be like, Hey, my last set, I'm going to do that. Or would it just be like, my last set? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, actually, no, that's <laughs> a good question. Maybe that's a progression too. Like maybe if I'm still surviving and walking after doing it for my like second set, and maybe the next week it's like I do it for my first and my second set or, or something like that. I don't exactly know, yeah. but uh, I haven't gotten there yet. But that was at least for that one specific movement. That was something on my mind because I, I am doing it for hamstrings mostly, but I tend to feel it more in my glutes because of that top position. Yep. I have um, I have an amendment to my hip extension video, which happens every Every mesocycle, I'm like, yeah, you know, I would love to redo this form video. Fucking every single mesocycle. This time around, I'm like, you know, we're doing hip extension. So my gym program is doing it with the machine home. People are setting it up at home. And I, kudos to those people because some of them have fucking nailed it. <laughs> and, and they've done such a good yeah. job. And sometimes, you know, I'm like, hey, move the cable down one click or move the your Smith or your bar in the J hooks, move it down one notch and then move the plate down, move the move your feet back two inches. You know, we're just like recalibrating. So kudos to all them. They've really, I'm, I've been impressed. I thought it was going to backfire, but I've done it on a couple of mesocycles. It's worked. My point is I need, I, there's a couple of amendments I want to do. And I have two gym memberships, but like, I just literally would, I think I'm just going to buy the the one that you have and just, I just would rather buy it 
get it delivered yeah. to my garage to film the form video. Like whether, <laughs> obviously I will use it, but um, I just laugh because Jenna's like, well, yeah, you're gonna come with me to the gym this morning. She goes and she uses the hack at one of the gyms nearby. And she's like, you could film the hip extension video. I was like, nah, maybe I'll just buy one. And then it comes, so I don't have to leave the house. I can take the nice form video yeah. at home, but yours is, looks it's a awesome. great, yeah. it's, it's a great machine. I mean, it's, I would say it's one level down from the Atlantis one and you know, $500 cheaper. So that's it. Atlantis is thousand, like a thousand bucks. Yeah. Oh, well, for the small one, for the small one. So they have, they have two versions of it. The one that Cass has is like the I'm big, like right commercial now. gym one. Yeah. And then they have like the more home compact version. And that one's a thousand dollars. Let's see. Let's check this out real quick. Um, the Atlantis. Would, what would be your next piece of gym equipment that you, that you've thought about? I can't dude. I have no more room. My wife will literally kick me out of the house. And does your, yeah, does your I, kid no really room. need a, a bedroom? Like, I'm kidding. Right, exactly. No, you know what's funny is we have this massive basement like right outside my gym. It's huge. It's um, It's got like a huge bedroom, a huge basement, a bathroom, the full thing's done. And I'm just like, let me just build out, you know, 15 by 15. Let me just take like the back of the basement, you know, and, you know, maybe when the kids are older, but um, we all have visions of like, you know, putting in a pool table on the ping pong table and the entertainment center and like all this stuff. So I don't know how well gym fits in there too. Yeah, but I see. I see. To answer, Go ahead. No, just to say, to answer your question, the converging chest machine would be, would be ups on my list right now because that's Which the one only thing. Man, I don't really even care. Like I would obviously love a prime one, but I don't think that's realistic. So there's a, a guy, uh, John Noel on Instagram. He has a converging one from, I want to say body solid, but it's only like what, $300, super cheap. And, uh, and I would totally get that if there was space, there's just no space. I'm going to share my screen for you guys. Not going to be able to see if you're not on YouTube here, but I mean, we're not going to talk about anything important for the rest of the podcast, but, <laughs> but this one, this, this one, this guy's using right here. Can you see yeah. it? Yep. Um, this grip he's using is, is atrocious, but the fact that it has this neutral grip, I have used this machine and it is just so unbelievable. And the, the annoying part is if you just Google image it and you find all the images, like this guy here is at lifetime, he's using it. Like none of them are, no, none of these people right. are actually using, <laughs> none of these people are using the neutral grip handles, but they are so freaking good. The leveraging is so good. The grip is so good. It doesn't have maybe a ton of bells and whistles, but this Nautilus one is one that I almost is worth a trip to the gym for me. It's fantastic. Yeah. Check out the body solid one. It's lying. I think it's body solid is lying down and it has like uh, I think it has neutral grip handles. I can't be a hundred percent sure on that though. This one. Yeah. The lying down one on the left. No, the lying oh, down one, one on the left body. Oh, this one's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no left over here. Left. This is my left. Um, I, I am. Uh, this one. It's the, yeah, that one. That's the one that, that he has, I believe. Yeah. This is a nice. That John has. Yeah, this is a nice piece too. It's 1200 bucks. No, that's not the one then. It looks just like that, but it's definitely not that one. Uh, but anyway, it looks like that. It's just yeah. simpler. And I think it was like 300. But anyways, that would be for sure the next one. Like I had to get rid of my massive shelving unit just to fit my hip extension in there. And uh, so now I have no shelving. Does which it, means do, you that find that, storage. do you find that the square footage of that, 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 that hip extension is large? No, it's not huge. Um, I can give you exact measurements or whatever if you're interested, but um, maybe just a picture of like a zoomed out in the room. I always look at it and I'm like, I can't scale how big this actually is. Yeah, my gym is 13 by 22, but it's missing a corner. So part of it is not 13 by 22. It's like 13 by seven or something. Um yeah. I mean, my space isn't huge. I just played a lot of Tetris and put like a lot of thought into organization, you know? Yeah. 
Cool. All right, my guy, let's get you out of there. Super fun podcast. Yep. Drop a line, tell people where they can find you. Yep, yep. At Brian Borstein on Instagram. Um, I podcast at Eat, Train, Prosper with my co-host, Aaron Straker. We pretty much talk about mostly hypertrophy training. Straker uh, um, focuses primarily on nutrition and I do training. So it's a really cool um, thing that we have going on there. And then uh, I guess Evolve Training Systems and Paragon Training Methods are my two brands. Cool. I'll link all that stuff in the description. Thanks for coming on, brother. Sweet. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.